Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your semi-weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. I'm your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavin. And today we're going to be taking a look at the third in our series of quote-unquote forgotten rock classics, the album Dixie Chicken by Little Feet. So this album was released January 25th, 1973, was recorded late 1972, all around Los Angeles, Clover Recorders, uh, Warner Brothers Recording Studios in North Hollywood, Sunset Sound in my neighborhood, (laughs) and... uh, came out on Warner Brothers, pretty much considered one of the definitive uh, albums for this band, even though it was kind of their second incarnation. So, Mike, you probably know a lot more about this band than John and I combined. Why don't you give a little background on how this one came to be? Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Um, yeah, this band, I mean, it, you know, you can sort of encapsulate in, in, in something like, you know, there's a story about how it all began in 1969 when Frank Zappa was smart enough to fire Lil George from the Mothers of Invention and tell him to start his own band. Um, you know, because I think at the time, uh, in the late 60s, Lil George, uh, again, a lot of these guys that are in the band were uh, Hollywood you know, kids. Uh, they went to, to Hollywood High School and you know, again, in my neighborhood. Yeah, again, in your neighborhood. And again, <laughs> if you're going to go you know, to high school in that neighborhood, you're going to get caught up in the, the Laurel Canyon scene and the, and the Zappa scene. So um, one of the reasons I picked this record, a lot, you know, there's quite a few reasons why I picked this record to check out. I mean, I think it's so underappreciated and, and, and undiscovered in a lot of ways and kind of forgotten. Uh, there, there's so much. The production is great. I mean, uh, there's. I'm not much of a lyric guy. There's some great lyrics in the verses that we'll get into um, the, the guitar playing is, is you know, top notch, um, but there's also a lot of pedigree and a lot of history behind the band. Um, you know, we'll start with the fact that, you know, uh, Lowell had, you know, obviously been a high school kid or a Hollywood high school kid, and he was playing in a band called The Factory, which gained uh, attention from Frank Zappa. And I believe Frank uh, produced a couple of tracks for those guys. Didn't really go anywhere. Uh, in between, you know, Lowell was the kind of utility player where he could just about play in any band he needed to or any band that wanted to. Uh, he did some fill-in gigs with the Standells, who were late 60s, sort of, you know, fuzz rock, uh, psychedelic band. Um, and then Lowell went on to play with Frank Zappa in the Mother's Dimension uh, for a while. It wasn't uh, long-lived, uh, but there are a couple stories behind why, you know, Lowell exited the band. One was, you know, Lowell thought he might have been better, or, you know, Frank obviously was not a, a drug guy, and, and apparently Lowell George was, you know, into smoking pot or whatever, which wasn't out of character for that time. Either way, they separated and moved on, but at the same time, um, you know, no bridges were burned because Frank was essential in helping uh, the band that Lowell formed uh, later on, uh, Little Feet. Uh, he helped get them uh, attention from Warner Brothers uh, records. So if it wasn't for that early association with, you know, Frank Zapp in the early days, this might not have happened to the band. Um, yeah, but overall, too, I mean, you've got such a it's, a, it's a great cultural mix in this band. I mean, you essentially have, you know, an African-American rhythm section. Um, and you have, you know, it's funny because you think of bands like, I always think of bands like Creedence Clearwater Revival. And you listen to those records, it's so swampy. You think that band must be from New Orleans, but they're not. They're, uh-huh. they're from San Francisco, <laughs> which is the furthest thing away from in the Mississippi Delta. Um, much like this band, like you would think, I hear so many influences in this band. I mean, I hear Sly and the Family Stone, I hear the Meters, I hear the Stones, I hear the band. And you would think that they were from any place other than Southern California. 
But, you know, I think they kind of honed in on this record and focused on the sort of New Orleans, you know, jazz kind of scene. But there's just so many other things that you hear in this record, like Dr. John. It, it, there's so many influences. It's like, a you know, a pea soup of, of influences, but it comes across in such a straightforward way. Um, and I'm a big fan of the production of this record. Um, but then again, too, um, just to get back to the history of the band, you know, um, you know, a lot of times bands get together or players come into a band because you know somebody. And maybe because you know that person you're familiar with, and that gives them an edge over somebody that might be maybe, you know, a better player or whatever. You know, all these guys had sort of, you know, known each other, uh, particularly um, Lowell and, and the drummer, um, uh, Richie Hayward, and also the keyboardist Bill Payne. They had all known each other. Uh, but they also later on became, um, again, because based on their, they were just such strong players. They later did a lot of sessions with a lot of other guys like um, Robert Palmer, uh, Bonnie Raitt. I mean, they were, they were on so many other records other than Little Feet stuff, which just goes to show that, you know, when, you have, when you're that strong of a player and you put them all together in a band, you know, really the whole becomes more than some of the parts because I think in this record, they really define themselves as Little Feet. And it's really the defining moment in a lot of those guys uh, playing throughout their career. Um, and I, there's just, I mean, there's so much I could say about this record, but yes, it was definitely their, their third record for Warner Brothers. Um, the first two have been uh, produced by other people, particularly the second album, uh, which is equally great. Uh, Sailing Shoes was produced by Ted Templeman, obviously produced uh, Doobie Brothers, Van Halen, etc. Um, but in this case, the production was handled by Lil George. And it's not often that a band you know, will move on after working with a producer like Ted Templeman and have any sort of success. I mean, one of the few... Uh, would be Van Halen uh, with their album 5150. But I think the only reason that Van Halen didn't use to tempt them to produce their record is because he wasn't available. He was, I think, committed to producing the David Lee Roth album, Eat Him and Smile. So they really didn't have much of an option there. But in this case, I think this is more driven from uh, Lowell's perspective in terms of him wanting to produce the record, which again, speaks to me in a lot of ways because here you have a, you know, I mean, all these great players, you know, I'm not a pimple on you know, Lowell's, you know what, uh, but I admire the guy for a lot of things. His production value, um, his slide guitar playing. Most people play slide with, you know, tiny little glass slides or, you know, uh, chrome slides. He uses like a Sears and Roebuck uh, spark plug socket wrench for a slide, which must have been super heavy, <laughs> you know. Uh -huh. And he also utilized uh, some great techniques with recording, particularly the slide guitar stuff, because it's really not distorted slide guitar. It's sort of clean, almost like pedal steel slide guitar playing. And I think, well, I think one of the reasons he was able to achieve that sound is through a lot of compression. You know, this might get technical, but when you compress the guitar sound, you know, the first note you hit kind of gets squashed and then it, it, it blooms, it blossoms in a way, it swells. And you hear that a lot on this record. And I just, I just admire the guy's songwriting, his production. I think there's some great lyrics on, the, on this record. Um, it's such a great rhythm section and there's so much great band interplay. And this, this, this album, just you, you put it on, it's, you know, there's that weird saying in, in the movie, uh, Eddie and the Cruisers, where he's like, hey, you know, some people's music is just, you know, the laundry, the, the sheets, and you, you, it gets messed up and you put it in the laundry, you send it out for laundry and it comes back. You know, other things that you want to, it wants to be like a blanket you know, that you wrap yourself in. I think this is one of those albums. Um, and I, I hopefully I didn't mislead anybody last week when I was saying this album kicks ass because, you know, in a way, you know, an album doesn't have to be heavy or, you know, driving or, you know, super energetic to be, to be kick-ass, but you know, when you get into this record, if you allow yourself to be swallowed up by it, uh, put put on some headphones and check it out. There's a lot to discover about this record. And I just I love you know the history behind the band, um, and unfortunately, it, it took a, an unfortunate turn 
uh, with Lowell's health uh, towards the end, but I'm you know, sure we'll get into that later. But, uh, you know, maybe hopefully that's enough history behind the band and we can get into tunes. And I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys uh, thought about this album. Sure. Yeah, um, that, that gives us a good background. So let's let's jump in with track one. <coughs> Opener is Dixie Chicken. John? Uh, yeah, I had read somewhere that they have like two drummers or whatever. Was that true for this album? Like they had had like a second drummer available or whatever? Because this seems to be like a conga part and then a regular drum part. In yeah, it. they have an additional a percussionist, right? Yes, yeah. that's correct. They had, yeah, they had a drummer and a percussionist. And also, too, uh, in terms of lineup changes, I think they had changed bass players uh, between the second album and this The album. second and third, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's what I read. All right, so... Um, I mean, it's it's the great the way the piano comes in. The uh, I love the you know sort of backup vocals, almost gospel. Um, sounds like sort of old country. Uh, I wrote slide guitar greatness. Um, I like that lead line and the uh, the riff, and it's just it's a good story too in terms of lyrics. Like it's sort of a love and loss, and then of course he loses out to another musician. Um, so. <laughs> It's definitely I, I I love the the imagery of uh, Dixie Chicken and Tennessee Lamb, um, which is pretty cool. So it it stands out. I mean, a lot of this stuff, and I'll get into it later, but um, it definitely sounds like that '70s funk sound. Um, mm. And again, this is uh, interesting enough. This is this is one of those bands that I've always heard is one of the greatest bands ever, and never really listened to at all. You know, this, they're played on YEP all the time, and I'm like, change the channel. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so it's nice that I finally got a chance to, like, actually listen to a full um, album of theirs. So, yeah, so I, I like the song. I mean, at first, it sounds so super 70s that I'm like, uh, And then the musicianship is just, I mean, compared to the other albums that we reviewed, these guys are obviously masters of their instrument. You know, these are not, they didn't just learn it a few years ago or a slow They're seasoned, it's yeah, top notch. Exactly. Yeah, There's just right. nothing bad about anything they're doing, you know. So go ahead, Dave. What do you think? Um, I think it's a great barnstormer opening track, you know. I mean, like I, I see why a song like this would go down like Gangbusters Live. Um it's it's kind of an odd like weird syncopated uh feel to this song though like it's all kind of on the upbeat and you know i'm always amazed when i hear a song if i if i hear a song and i think well i could have written that you know <laughs> then i think to myself well how good can it really be but i wouldn't know where to begin to try to write a song in this groove because it's such an odd weird right. groove and yet it it works undeniably so well um and it's got like a really kind of joyful celebratory uh quality about it you know i think you hit on it when you said that gospel influence is is very prevalent and then you know which is ironic because obviously it's a story about heartbreak and uh mm. it reminds me of a guy that Mike and I knew mm -hmm. <laughs> who is still around and I won't name names, but he plays in a band and has a successful plumbing business on the side, but he, <laughs> he, he went to Vegas one weekend and met a stripper and fell in love instantly and got married that weekend and brought her back to LA and everybody was just kind of like, Oh, you got married the weekend you met her and she's a stripper, eh? Well, 
good luck with that. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't want to be the naysayer, but uh, needless to say, it, it worked out about as well as it does for this guy in this song. So, uh, Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that, that's so funny. I mean, but at the same time, too, yeah, with a, a song like this, I mean, it's interesting, too, because this was basically the hit from the record. And they start the record off you know, with their hit, which is actually a, a brilliant approach. But it also gives you the opportunity to dig deeper into the record as you go through it, because after that, there really aren't any hits. But that doesn't mean the rest of the songs aren't any good or aren't worth listening to. And again, um, you, you mentioned the groove, Dave, and writing a song like this. I love from the very get go, you hear the guy saying first line is, OK, again, one, two, three, four. As they got the groove, it's like it's almost like they, that take is happening live and they roll tape. But OK, here we go. You know, I mean, it's it's so in the moment, much like, you know, uh, Great tracks on the Stones, uh, Exile on Main Street, um, kind of sound that way. Uh, but it, it's such a, again, like you said, John, it's a great melody. It's definitely got that gospel feel with the, the background vocals, and um, you know, again, you know, the classic story of like having a great time and thinking that this is where your life is going to be, and then all of a sudden you wind up finding your beard, you know, the next day, or you know, having some sort of Sunday morning regret. You know, it, it happens. It happens. Um, but the last thing I'll say about it, too, is we mentioned, or at least I mentioned Frank Zappa and his association with this band, and so again, Moth the Ground. Uh, you know, it's, it's known that Frank Zappa had an obviously sense of humor. I think one of the funny things about uh, Little Feet promoting this song, uh, when it was first released, um, apparently it did uh, some uh, promotion where Lil George dressed up as uh, like a chicken. And they were sort of, you know, <laughs> delivering the, you know, the finger picking good, you know, slogan, you know, and trying to sell the record that way. So here you have these high level seasoned musicians still not taking themselves too seriously and, you know, promoting things in a funny way. And it's classic 70s, you know, AOR, you know, promo. So bravo to those guys. It's a great start to the record. And, um, you know, again, uh, there are friends of mine that, like, like you said, John, it's just, this is such an FM 70s rock staple that as soon as you hear it, you've heard it so many times, you, you want to move on and turn it off. But, you know, the shame of it is there's so much other great stuff in the record that you don't get to hear. And thank goodness for friends um, like Dave, like, like our friend Dave in, in Hawaii, really interesting to these guys and i you know i now have a super huge appreciation for the fans so again thanks to friends for you know influencing each other and uh guiding us in terms of music to check out you, you is, do wonder sorry uh, go, ahead, go ahead i was just gonna say you do wonder how the african-american rhythm section felt about the celebration of quote unquote dixieland yeah <laughs> yeah it's a it's a fine line you know yeah but I yeah. think it all comes from the you know, appreciation, uh, you know, music-wise, you know, uh, it, more so than, you know, sort of having cultural differences or, you know, having issues with things. You know, I think there's a fun aspect to it. I think they they probably focus on it that way. Grand, this is what, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago. Yeah. You, know, you were going to say something, John? Um, yeah, but I just, uh, oh, uh, the the band. Yeah, the, the group, the band. Yeah. Um, is a huge influence growing up from my father and so they sound like the band so there's almost a part of me that is pushed away from this sound because that's my dad's music you know what i mean and we listen to a lot of band in the house you know what i mean so yeah it's uh again it's interesting to hear this stuff again so all right go ahead so two trains is that what we're doing two trains you go john all right uh i say it sounds like old motown um like almost like mid-70s motown um, a big ja Jackson Five, Sly and the Family Stone kind of thing. What I actually liked about the my favorite thing about this song is the um, the one train my has my friend, the other is me, um, which I thought was a great lyric. 
Um, and then it's sort of built like a lot of these songs are built like old school Dixieland jazz songs or jazz songs in terms of like verse, chorus, solo. You know what I mean? Like every member or there's always a lead line going somewhere, whereas most of the stuff that we review on this podcast doesn't do that. You know what I mean? They don't let the they don't let the other musicians breathe as much as they do here. Um, again, I think some of that is being in the studio and a lot more freedom to just overlay and overlay and, you know, that kind of stuff, that that Laurel Canyon sound or whatever. Um, but yeah, um, I liked it. I mean, but it's got that super Motown vibe to me. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. like the first song we really hear that that funk mm -hmm. aspect of the band. And, uh, and lyrically, you know, I, I think it's, interesting because i mean essentially he's talking about being in a relationship and he finds out that you know his best friend is also kind of got something going on on the side with this this girl and if you look at the the timing of it this was sort of really at the height of free love and mm -hmm. open relationships and all that late 60s early 70s stuff and so you know you can sort of see him as 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 the the songwriter on one hand trying to be cool about it and trying to rationalize to himself like okay well yeah maybe this could be this you know we could all be french about this and this could kind of work but then there's this part of him that's like no <laughs> no, no i'm way. coming for you buddy yeah i can't deal with this you know yeah like it's him or me and we gotta this can't go on this is just painful and uh so yeah, it's 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 clever symbolism. The the use of the train obviously is a phallic symbol, and the two trains <laughs> on this collision course to disaster. So your thoughts, Mike? Yeah, I mean, again, just that that great um, you know R&B kind of feel in the beginning. You know, granted, this song is written by Lowell George, uh, you know, the primary guitar player in the band, but the intro is you know the keyboards. You know, so usually you get like the Stones approach where it's always starting with guitar, and a lot of these songs start with keyboards, even though they're written by a guitar player which is an interesting approach too. Um, but again, too, like any, a lot of these songs could be on any uh, early 70s uh, Stones album. If you listen to a lot of the Rye Cooter stuff that was happening at the same time, all that stuff kind of has a similar feel. It's definitely worth checking out. And again, I love, you know, I'm not much of a lyric guy, but, you know, I love the fact that, that with this record, there's so much soul and sort of drama to some of the songs, but that's equal to the lyrics. And the lyrics are definitely well, you know, thought out. Uh, and to that point about the relationship thing, one of the great lines is, now I'm not one to hide my love behind a lock and key, but if things can go in the way they are, then there's no place left for me. You know, it's almost mm -hmm. like, you know, classic, like, blues stuff from, you know, the 40s and the 50s. And so it's, it's, it's so well done. A lot of these lyrics are influenced by the approach of old blues guys, like Delta blues guys, for sure. Yeah, and also, too, we have to praise uh, Lowell's voice. I mean, it's, at times... It goes into you know the mid range, high end kind of range too. But then when he goes low, he kind of sounds like Muddy Waters in a way. It's he's he was so diverse, <laughs> so talented. I, I just I get chills you know just talking about the guy and listening to his stuff. Love him. All right, roll him easy. Uh, I'm sure it's about weed, but I'm not gonna say that. It's I wrote down it's more folk than funk. Um, I like that line. Profanity rolls right off of my tongue. And the other line about the angels who sing so sweet in um, Houston, and then the other lyric, play the temptress, I'm de uh, defenseless. I love the slide guitar playing in this. The slide guitar playing is actually really, really Actually, cool. the line about profanity is even better. It's an eloquent profanity oh, okay. rolls right off my tongue. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah, the lyrics are really great actually here. And I love this, the slide guitar. It's a little bit more on top of the, um, you know, the sort of acoustic guitar thing. It's, it reminds me a lot of the Almond Brothers, you know what I mean? In terms of, yeah, their, yeah Almond Brothers, like guitar uh, kind of stuff. But again, it's that singer songwriter, Laurel Canyon influence, you know what I mean? That's kind of um, right in there, you know? And I, it's funny, I always thought like maybe th this would be the hit, but maybe not, I don't know. Rather than the um, other, you know what I mean? It sounds more of that time period, but I don't know. Dave, what do you think? Um, I think I hear a lot of influence on Mike's slide guitar playing on, on this song, you know, now that I, yeah. I have the background to go, oh, okay, yeah, that's where he's getting some of that cool stuff from. Mike and uh, figured it out. Yeah, yes. and it, it it's an interesting song. I think there's probably a double, if not tip, triple entendre going down there with Roll em Easy. Obviously, you know, we're talking about rolling joints and whatnot, but also, uh, you know, he's, he's sort of speaking from the role of... Um, what, what we can refer to as the trope of the crafty hustler, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he realizes that this woman is a bit of a hustler too, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so there's this kind of like, this theme on this album of this disillusioned romantic who has sort of woken up to the transactional nature of many male-female relationships. And so he's trying to sort of make the best of this situation. And um, so it, definitely the stuff that, that comes from the old blues stuff is the, you know, the, the braggadocio of saying, you know, look, baby, I may not have fancy clothes or a penny to my name. And, you know, uh, I might look like a broke bum, but you don't know me. You don't know where I've been. For all you know, I've been, you know, out drinking with kings and, you know, I've, I've been everywhere. I've seen everything and I could t show you a thing or two. And uh, and it's funny because, I mean, you can see the influence of that on, I mean, it, it comes from the old blues guys, but I mean, it, it's still alive very much to this day. You know, when you have, uh, uh, let's see here. You know, Kid Rock talking about, I've been around, seen some things, I slept in dumpsters, got high with kings, right? There's a direct line there between this song and that. When you, you know, even Axl Rose, you know, mm -hmm. saying, I've seen everything imaginable pass before these eyes. I've had everything that's tangible. Honey, you'd be surprised. Again, it's this, you know, has he literally had everything that's tangible in this life? Probably not, but it comes from that blues tradition. So your thoughts, Mike? Yeah, all of that, um, you know, on top of the fact that, you know, much like a lot of the albums at the time, um, because I think John, I'll, I'll say this too, to, to, to both to John's point about maybe this should have been the hit. You know, this would have been definitely competitive with a band like Bread, you know, David Gates and that yes. kind, of Tusa kind of thing, you know, but this has, this is a little more, this has a little more soul to it in a way. And it's more of like a, a party aspect. It's like there are albums that came out around this time, the Simon Family Stone and the Rolling Stones, where you know you feel like you, you drop the needle and you just join somebody's party. Like you hear them having fun and you hear them sitting around the table playing these songs and recording. It doesn't sound like something that's, you know, a formula and been produced in a way. I mean, it's well captured and it's well, you know, arranged and you know, the production value is there, but it doesn't sound like something that's forced in a way. It sounds genuine to me. Um, so you had a great storytelling over 
you know, was really such a fragile performance. I mean, there's so much space in this song with the acoustic guitar and the slide guitar. It, you know, it's that is one of the hardest things to do is deliver songs on an acoustic guitar or playing, you know, a, a Stratocaster guitar playing a slide guitar with a, you know, a socket wrench. You know, how do you make it sound that warm? I don't get that. There is so much to be admired about this album. This is a great example of that. Yeah, the guitar tones, not only do they all work individually, but they all kind of fit together in the mix like a glove. It's pretty, it's amazing how well thought out the entire thing is sonically. Nothing steps on anything else. No, it breathes. It's great. It's great. All right. On your way down. Uh, I found out that this is a cover, actually. Um, is that right? This is a cover? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like the B3. Is that a B3 or Hammond organ or something like that? It sounds, it totally sounds like a Sly and the Family Stone uh, a song. Like it totally could have been a Sly and the Family Stone song. I love the wah-wah solo lead that's going over it. Um, you know, great message about you got to pay, you got to, you're going to see the people on the way down, you know, that you stepped on on the way up and all that kind of stuff. So it's a good song. I like it. Dave, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it, it is funny how in rock and roll, uh, there are these sort of, you know, parables of karma, you know, mm -hmm. that, that actually echo traditional religious morality um, and, and sort of rear their heads again and again, whether it's, you know, rat saying what comes around goes around or it's so easy to forget what you give is what you get. And mm -hmm. I mean, this this song, I mean, it, it does make me think of, uh, I think there was an interview with Sharon Osbourne uh, where, you know, she was asked her one piece of advice for young rockers on the rise in, in the music industry. And she said, never count anybody out because just when you think somebody's career is completely over, they could always come back. And if you treat them like shit when they're on their way out, they may not be done. So you better be nice to them, uh, you know, because you never know what's going to happen in the future. Of course, this is coming from a woman that's never been nice to anybody. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, Mike, your thoughts. Yeah, this is one of my favorite on, the, on this album. And I didn't realize until today that uh, Alan Toussaint's version came out in 72. So this is a relatively recent pickup uh, by mm. these guys. Um, I did check out the original arrangement. Uh, it's basically the same key. It follows the same structure. There's you know, some differences in, in the instrumentation, but um, this one even sounds bigger though than the original because it, definitely the piano intro is is very Derek and the Dominoes era stuff and it's timeless, um, it's it's huge sounding, it's grand, it, it you know swallows your whole and then too especially when that Hammond organ comes in, it just it's just such a warm tone you know you feel like you're in the room hearing the band play the song which adds to that sort of you know you're in the moment with the band while they're playing the song. Never mind the fact that it, it's really great storytelling. Um, I don't necessarily know the connection between. A little feet now that you say, but nonetheless, um, I, I do have a, a great documentary. I believe it's called uh, Feet's First, and it's basically the story of Lowell George, and it gets a lot more deep into that. There's almost too many details of me to even share and remember. There's so much in that documentary. Um, but you know, again, this is, you know, we're only four songs into the record. It's a relatively short record, much like Hotel California or uh, Sticky Fingers, but you know, there's no wasted space. Uh, they get to the point. And it just there's that great groove, great rhythm section, great playing, and it's just a, it's a warm tone and, and great playing, great singing.
All right. Kiss it off. This is my favorite on the album uh, because it's got that crazy, you know, proggy, hippy dippy sound to it. With the, uh, I love. It's got sort of a psychedelic vibe to it. You know, the keyboards. It's got all these great lyrics. It's you know, it's got a psychedelic vibe to it. It's got those great lines like "Child of Electric Nightmare," uh, "Swords of Fire." They keep uh, keep hungry, keep the hungry from the sacred grove. I love that. This is freaking awesome. Um, I did have some fun trying to figure out how you spell milk toasted love because I mean there's milk <laughs> something is milk toast you know what I mean it means it's weak it, it's an unusual use yeah. of the word in that context yeah, generally I mean, I, I I mean it milk. means it means kind of the equivalent to meh you yeah, know it's, it's, it's <laughs> like with, yeah. without boldness or passion right you know just kind of half-hearted I always thought it was spelled with a Q I always thought milk ah. toast was its own word. I don't know. At any rate, I, that's what I figured it. Uh, again, I love the little weird psychedelic things that they throw in there. I like that keyboard vibe. I mean, it's really, it is actually, I, I mean, probably you hate me for saying this, but this is my favorite song on the album because it's got that, you know, it feels like sort of a world that's enveloping me. Um, you know, like lots of imagery, lots of places to see. The music is kind of, you know, wraps around you, that kind of stuff. So Dave, your thoughts? Um, actually, I agree with you. I, this is definitely one of my top two favorite songs. I think probably the opening song in this song. Um, and actually, I hear this song as being a lot more straightforward, maybe the most straightforward, like actual rock song on the album. Um, I, I think the synths are really interesting. I think the with a different arrangement, this could be easily like a Black Sabbath song yeah, from, yeah, the, yeah, from exactly, the Dio yeah. era, you know, because because of the melody and, and the lyric imagery and all of that, this is really very close to the ballpark of songs like Sign of the Southern Cross, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, stuff like that from, from when Dio was singing for Sabbath. And um, yeah, great, you know, lyrical imagery and, uh, you know, it's a little vague in terms of exactly what they're talking about <laughs> but uh but but it is this the most interesting song lyrically without a doubt yeah so Mike, yeah your, it'd be fun thoughts. to figure it out what it's about i mean i kept going over the lyrics it was my favorite one to listen to over and over again so mike your thoughts yeah definitely there's a bit of mystique when it comes to what they're really you know trying to put across here uh, lyrically um but you know at the same time too that all the synth and you know the keyboard stuff makes it uh it reminds me of something here like on a movie soundtrack you know it's it's very dramatic it's very haunting um and it's sort of the precursor to things that uh Fleetwood mac had done later on songs like gold Dust woman and oh daddy with the sort of minor chords and the you know the nutty kind of you know synthy kind of stuff i mean Funny how that never really went away in the 70s. We're talking this is 73 and it had been done before, but then on you know, Rumors, which came out in what, 77? Yeah, that was still happening. So it was a thing. But it, it's interesting too, because it gives the album uh, that much more, um, diversity is probably a bad word. To, to, it's not the most appropriate word for this, but there are a lot of, I guess diversity really is the best word because it really just, not each song is different and they stand on their own. You know, and, and some of them sound relatively similar, but. A song like this makes you take pause and just sort of, you know, let yourself be swallowed up by it. Um, it wasn't necessarily one of my favorites, uh, but giving it a more concentrated listen today and, and you know, especially getting behind the, you know, the, the sort of sound effects and stuff, I really have a, a new appreciation for it. All right. Fool Yourself. 
Uh, my thing that I wrote down is it's super 70s, super funky. But uh, this is the first time that I'm really, I mean, I know that the bass line is all over this, but this is the first time that I'm like, wow, that's a pretty cool bass line. And actually, I think it's one of the simpler ones on the album. Um, but it's, and also the way that the um, chorus opens wide open, you know what I mean? It sort of goes and then it's like, I don't know how to explain it. Like the vamp into the chorus is very powerful. It does a really, um, got a really nice feel to it. Um, yeah, I, again, it's it's uh, another song that I like. Again, it sounds, I mean, it's just got that like, this is what my dad's listening to on the AM radio. You know what I mean? Vibe to it, which I don't dislike, but it definitely, you know what I mean? It sets where it is, where the song comes from. So what do you think, Dave? Uh, yeah, it's definitely got that 70s funk kind of cinematic. Like I could hear this song like on a black exploitation movie soundtrack somewhere. <laughs> or a cop show yeah. or a porno or, you know, um, <laughs> but uh, but I also think it's interesting, like the opening lyrics talking about, yo, you, you, you need to change. You can't stay the same or you'll be singing the wrong tune. It's almost like they're talking about their own changes and advancement in musical direction that's reflected by this album at the same time. So, you know, I think th that it sort of works on that meta level is kind of interesting. But, you know, I dig it. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, good tune. You know, it, it's sort of, you know, whether you're questioning yourself or questioning the person that you're writing about, you know, anytime, anytime somebody's saying they got to get a hold of themselves or they're doing their best, but they just need to rest. I mean, you know, which one is it? You know, <laughs> you make up your mind. Um, but yeah, the, the, the groove, I mean, this rhythm session is, is record is amazing. I mean, so much, they're so locked in and, and so much blending of, of the great guitar playing and, the, you know, the wonderful, beautiful uh, vocal harmonies uh, are great. Um, interesting point about this song too is it's written by a guy named Fred Tackett who had worked with the band, you know, to say the early days, uh, you know, on albums prior, and uh, he later became a member of the band uh, in the '80s. So this is sort of a, you know, even though it's a Lowell George production and and, and Lowell wrote a lot of the songs in this record, this is the ones that he didn't write. Um, but at the same time too, it fits in well with the rest of the record. So obviously, again, these are all strong players and they know what they're doing, and there's a reason why they're working together at that time. All right, Walkin' All Night, which is the only song not sung by the main lead singer, correct? I believe so, yes. Yeah. Um, it's got a nice bluesy riff to it. I like that opening line, or that line in the first chorus about looking for small, listening for small star talk. I named it the, uh, again, it's got a great bass line. I mean, you know, it's like literally... This is, I don't know what, what had happened in the previous songs, but the bass lines are finally starting to like uh, hit on me here. Um, it sounds, um, stri strikes me as a song about a prostitute, but I'm not really sure. Um, I think it's it's written in a, in a vague enough way that he's certainly hinting at the fact that that's one way to interpret it yes well he's saying he's been saving his money all week for, for something, something sweet she's yeah. got a kiss on her lips for the asking yeah yes yeah. yes it yes sounds like that's a, yeah the hooker but i mean it's um i like it uh again it's not you know what i mean it doesn't super stand out to me but i i like it it's good i mean again there's all of these songs are just if you look at them critically there's nothing you can fault it's like there's the uh as an art teacher there's four steps of art criticism you know what i mean and you go through the four steps of art criticism and your final one is is a, a, a um you know value like is it does it does does it do what it's supposed to do you know what i mean 
and all of these songs are like that. There's nothing, you know, if, um, if I describe it and then I look at it from all the perspectives of all the blendings of the instruments, there's nothing wrong. There's not a moment where I'm just like, that note doesn't go there. What's going on here? You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So these songs are all like, even though I wouldn't particularly put this on a playlist, it's still just, it's still, you can't argue with it being not a great song, even though I don't really care. You know what I mean? Like it's hard to explain. Like you listen to it in the moment and you're like, oh, wow, that's neat. That's neat. That's neat. You know what I mean? But then it, yeah, it doesn't necessarily stay with you. But then when you listen to it again, you're like, that's cool. So like all of these songs are like that. I mean, it's, you know, um, they all have so much going on in them that, I mean, and, and maybe it takes more than just a week. I mean, I listen to this album every single day, drive to work, drive from work, you know what I mean? Driving my kids somewhere and my son freaking hates this album, but it's, um, or Jack hates it, you know what I mean? Which is funny because your son plays jazz, so he should right, exactly. by rights you would love think, this album. Yeah, but he does it, he, he kept saying it's, um, it's too uh, boring. And I was like, well, yeah, well, that was where it was going in the 70s. It was it was kind of more mellow at that point. Um, and then this falls into like that um, mellow vibe that it, it takes a while for you to realize they are actually rocking. Because on your first, he only heard it, you know, like one or two times. And to him, it sounded like that sort of 70s feel. But that's what happened listening to it all week is I was like, oh, this actually really rocks. This isn't like... Um, elevator music from the 70s that I heard all the time and just kind of ignored because it was my parents music so, right it's it's very laid back but it's also very intense yeah there's a mm -hmm. so you know, much going on not only are they seasoned players but they're writing from a very seasoned perspective right and they're like obviously I, yeah they've got that influence of um Frank Zappa so they're, they're weird you know what I mean their stuff is a little bit odd you know which is good right it's a little quirky yeah they're not afraid to to be a little quirky, yeah. um, but but you think about that parable about the young bull and the old bull, right? Where the, you know, <laughs> the young bull looks at the cows up down in the field and says, you know, if we run down there, we might be able to get a cow, right? <laughs> and uh, the old bull goes, yeah, but if we walk down there, we might be able to get all of them, right? You know, yeah. like, right, yeah. <laughs> like these guys feel like they're already old bulls, no right. matter how young they are when they're making this album. Yeah, they don't have to play fast and loud to prove anything. Although fast and loud wasn't necessarily a thing back then even. I mean, I'm trying to think of like, I mean, the Who were playing sort of fast and loud. Um, but it's just kind of interesting. It's very, again, it's also very American music because it has that Ameri uh, Europeans playing 4-4 four, four on the dot, Americans playing 4.5-4. Four. You know what I mean? There's a little extra breathing room between, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, yeah, that kind of stuff. So it's got that vibe to it. So all right, I didn't need to sidetrack. Good, Dave. What do you think? No, I pretty much said all I, I had to say, just responding to you. So Mike, your thoughts? Again, just that great rhythm section, especially in that uh, second verse. There's all those chromatic bass lines. You know, they change the rhythm in the second verse. It's completely different from the first verse in terms of the rhythm playing there. Um, it's got again kind of the Fleetwood Mac feel where it's, you know, is it behind the beat or is it not, you know, it's not rushed in that way, which is again, brilliant and very mature uh, from a player perspective. Um, yeah, I, I, geez, it, it, again, great vocal, vocal melodies, great harmonies, uh, the solo's killer. 
And I love the ending too. They got that da 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 da, da which reminds me of the end of uh, Van Halen's Hot for Teacher. You know, there's that kind of you know, staccato mm. ending you know, that people use, I'm sure, prior and, and later. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, I think John, you mentioned the chorus. Yeah, def- the chorus definitely goes to a different level. It gets bigger, it swells, it just you know gets huge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, again, just so well executed and so well produced. And you know, when I say well produced, I mean just in terms of you know production value. I mean, obviously, these guys learned a lot from working with um, you know, producers prior, but you know, the fact that this is sort of a, a self-contained uh, production, again, is super made in, in my opinion. I definitely admire that. Cool. All right. Fat Man in the Bathtub. Sounds like some Frank Zappa would write. Um, <laughs> I love that opening drum beat, particularly with the wood block in there. There's, I mean, and, and what's funny is I'm sure just about it, like at least another two songs on there use a wood block somewhere. And then this is the one that I really notice it in, you know. Um, and then, and then it, you know, it goes in the acoustic guitar and then it gets, you know, with the slide and then it just builds and builds and builds. And I love that build in it. Um, I love that, that imagery of it's just a fat man in the bathtub feeling sad. You know what I mean? I guess it's like somebody who's like in love with somebody, Juanita. Um, but he can't, you know what I mean? Like he can't get any, uh, can't get any, you know, her to pay any attention to him. I like the mariachi horns in there. That's totally great. That's totally yeah. cool. Um, it's just a great, well-constructed song. It's so, you know, you want to listen. I mean, when I picked, when I looked at the album, I was like, Fat Man in the Bathtub, that's the one I should play first. You know what I mean? Because it's a great title. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, again, like totally, um, great there's that nice piano beat that's where or piano solo that's working syncopated against mm-hmm. the drum beat you know what i mean so it really like sort of skitters about it's pretty cool it's just yeah it's great dave your opinion <laughs> yeah i dig it i mean it, it it's got a great groove to it and uh it's impossible to name a song fat man in the bathtub without thinking that on some level they're referencing william howard taft right because he's right because he fell down like, in the bath <laughs> And that's all we know about William Allard Taft. (laughs) Yeah, he, uh, that's a blot of, uh, what were, no, that's a Blogert song. Right, Um, exactly. It also references William Howard Taft for being a fat man in the bathtub. But uh, historically, he died in the bathtub and he was like very obese. And so hence, you know, hence that's why I think that that might have been a reference. But, um, and there's a very kind of clever reference to him uh, offering her oil sex or oral sex using it as a you know oil change as a metaphor there (laughs) which is kind of uh funny and uh (laughs) but you know i mean you know it it's great i mean it rocks you know it's it's maybe not my one of my top songs on the record but i mean it it does what it it sets out to do it does it well uh mike your thoughts uh I find it interesting too that you know you have all these sort of you know, New Orleans type you know marching beat you know rhythms happening on the record and these are guys that weren't from you know that part of the country. I'm not, similar to um, the guys that, you know, in the band, the band so to speak, um, having that same kind of feel with a lot of stuff that they did. But you know these guys that are mostly from Canada, They're, they couldn't be any further away from from that region in terms of you know. Uh, growing up in that community, but still they they executed so well. Um, I, again, I love the you know the, the sort of syncopated stuff. John, you mentioned the piano it reminds me of the Stones. Uh, uh, 
uh, Love and Cup, you know, kind of playing, you know, they're, they're, again, there's so many great influences. Um, you know, are the influences, or are they just contemporaries, you know, that they're sort of drawing from in a way? This is 73, you know, right in the middle of that classic Stones era, era and, you know, the band is getting off the ground. Yeah, there's, I mean, the, also the, the meters were happening at the time. I mean, there's, you know, it's, I don't know, it's just amazing a collection of songs um, that I just, you know, to me, I could put this CD on any time and just do it all the way through, and it just it pulls me in straight away. I love it. Um, but also, too, you know, the fat man in the bathtub concept, um, I believe that's the way that uh, Jim Morrison was found when he passed away. Okay. And also, was too, he, had that happened by the time this album came out? Well, yeah. it did. Yeah, it did. Okay. Yeah. That was 70, right? Yeah, 70. Okay. Uh, but then also, too, you know, Grant, he didn't pass away in a bathtub, but uh, we mentioned Lil George, who was one of the key members in this group. Uh, he later, you know, gained a, a ton of weight, I and mean, he wasn't a you know small frame man to begin with. Uh, but, you know, he gained a lot of weight and wasn't taking care of himself towards the end. And you know, when he passed away, he was I want to say like three hundred or so pounds. So, you know, it's just sort you know sort of you know foreshadowing you know where things would go. You know, great. He wrote the song. Who knows? But, but either way, it, it, it's again, it's, it's there's such a great soul and funk vibe on this, you know, adding the New Orleans kind of flavor to it. It's just, I mean, it's, the playing is spot on. It's so great. All right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Juliet. Um, I like, I like the addition of the flute to it. Again, that flute, I, I, the only other bands that I've ever heard use flutes are like 10 years after and uh, Jethro Tull or whatever. Um, <laughs> But I like the I like the flute again. It just has the one thing that I dislike about it is it's got that solid "I'm a song from 1970 something." You know what I mean? Oh, the, even yeah. the way the yeah the, the flute is, but it's that great bridge with the uh, skies cast over. But I don't mind if you. Um, oh, that was the thing. If you yeah. go with her, the so-called prince of rock and roll. I don't know what this was about. Like. Juliet's obviously someone who's completely unlucky in love, but then at the same time, he's um, doing something with someone. And, and is he talking to a friend of his, or is he saying it's okay if you have a lesbian relationship? I don't know. Um, but it's uh, again, it's like a perfect song. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no moment where I'm like, that doesn't belong there. Or that's awkward or that's weird. You know what I mean? It all flows together nice and laid back. So it, it totally works. So yeah, I like it. Good. Dave, your your thoughts? Yeah, again, I mean, it's probably not one of my favorites on the album, but I mean, I dig it. I, I think lyrically, it's very much in the same perspective as Hard Luck Woman. Hmm. You know, we, we've all known women that for whatever reason, mass drama seems to follow them around like a black cloud. And, you know, no matter what they do or perhaps because of what they do and and how they behave they just seem to be magnets for trouble and bad relationships and profound heartbreak and you know i i like the uh the line heartbreak and or heartache and pain they call you by name they follow you around yeah you know that's definitely uh david coverdale could sing that line as, <laughs> as well uh and uh you know i mean it it rings true you know, I, I think that I, but I don't mind if you were with her one time, you know, again, that, that whole rationalizing the fact that he needs to say that probably means he does mind on some level, but he's trying to be cool about it, you know. Um, Mike, your thoughts? 
again, it, you can't you can't fault the production, you can't fault the songwriting on the on this song. Uh, but John, I definitely agree. When you hear it, you immediately think, "Oh my God, it sounds so 1973." And I think I figured out what that might be. Uh, just put on the Carpenters' Greatest Hits. You know, all those songs kind of start out that way with the sort of you know melancholy world sir Fender Road kind of sound, and where they have strings. You know, it, it's it gets a little, little sappy and melodramatic at the same time, but still. You can't follow the fact that all of them are well-written songs. Um, yeah, a good groove on the record. It's almost like this is a, a cooler and, and maybe funkier version of the Doobie Brothers who were coming out at the same time. Uh, but that bridge, uh, those, that chord, those chord changes in the bridge are just beautiful in mm -hmm. my opinion. Yeah, I mean, again, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's such a great pause in, in the song. That's what a great bridge yeah. in the song should do. Um, in terms of, you know, uh, Prince of Rock and Roll, I read something recently too, where I guess apparently Jimmy Page, I guess in 1975, had said the Little Feet was his favorite band. Yeah, so, right. I read that. Yeah, so you know, really? Not, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. That's yeah. His favorite American band. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Cool. Yep, good too. Kind of the kind of the closer to the album, right? Well, yeah, because the final song, uh, Lafayette Railroad, is an instrumental. That sounds like a lot of the other songs. Yeah, but it's got Although, that that bass line, the do 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 do, you know, is pretty cool. Um, but it does sound a lot like the other songs. And I, yeah, I mean, again, I like the idea of you know, I think there's like at least three or four references to trains in this song or in this album. So I'm yeah. a big you know fan of trains. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. What were you gonna say, Dave? I was just gonna say, yeah, I don't know if it's the strongest idea to have the album go out on an instrumental in terms of the track arrangement but uh but i mean the song still manages to be really melodic you know for not having any vocals and maybe it's something about the nature of instrumentals but it also seems maybe a little bit even more cinematic than some of the some of the other tunes on the record so mm -hmm. you know i i dug it yeah, I agree. We mentioned you know, cinematic qualities, also you know, soundtrack type stuff. This could be almost like a, you know, I, I this could be replacing the theme to the Barney Miller, or, you know, or you know, Friends Not a Cop from like Taxi or any of those '70s shows that had this sort of studio type, you know, player thing going on behind it. Um, but you know, at the same time too, I mean, it's well executed. Um, I kind of wonder if you know, I haven't done the full research, but you know, were there ever lyrics? considered for this song. I've, I've not heard any outtakes or I don't think there's ever been like an expanded version of this album that's ever come out. So yeah, I definitely uh, an odd way to, to close the record. I mean, it's kind of, it punctuates it in a way and makes you kind of take in the fact that you heard a really great record and maybe just need a, an instrumental, you know, non-vocal break, you know, to, to, to close the album. But um, it seems a little underdeveloped in that way though, but still yeah. well executed and well played. Yeah, I, I agree. All right, so overall thoughts summing up the album. Uh, probably an album I would never have listened to unless Mike Gavigan told me to listen to. I'm glad I listened to it. Um, there's some stuff that I put in a you know favorites file or whatever. Um, and again, it's um, interesting to hear an album where the musicians are just so all on point. There's not a weak member. There's not an awkward moment in any song where you say that shouldn't be delivered that way. You know what I mean? There's no, you know, the verses all flow into the chorus, all flow into the bridge, all flow into the solos. So it's really kind of a perfect album. Um, so thank you, Mike. Thanks for <laughs> making me listen to it. 
John, you made my day saying that. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And it's so fun to be able to share this stuff with you guys. Really, you know, it, that's what makes being a music fan, you know, a true joy when you can share it with somebody and actually, you know, take the time to listen to it and, you know, find things they can appreciate about it on their own. Thank you, John. It's wonderful. Yeah, no problem, man. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I definitely think that this is a very influential album. I mean, I can hear the influence of this album on, you know, like Tom Petty and Aerosmith and Guns N' Roses and, you know, uh, and Mike Gavigan. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, that I got a chance to check it out, too. I mean, it, it was definitely educational in in much the same way that listening to the replacements was you know not something that i would normally seek out on my own but um you know i feel richer for having given it the time to to listen to it and i can definitely appreciate it yeah i'm gonna go back and listen to some other stuff of theirs i hear their um this is the album that defined their sound so i think i'm gonna skip the first two and go to the fourth one see how that is for a little feature on i would definitely recommend checking out sailing shoes which is uh the album prior to this one. Oh, really okay yeah, all right the, produ the, the production is equally strong it's the ted Templeman production uh, but the, the songwriting is, is top notch much like it is on this record uh the slide playing is consistently great much like it is in this record uh to the point too where um a political blues uh van halen covered on oh eight one two okay yeah, so right. I definitely recommend checking that one out. The first one's interesting, but the second, yeah, Sailing Shoes is definitely the one that I would start with next. It's what my, honest, my, okay. my opinion for sure. Go with Sailing Shoes. You won't be disappointed. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, guys. Uh, we are going to take a little bit of a hiatus. Uh, rest assured, rock album analysts will be back. <laughs>